Earlier in the show, you heard from Tim Borstelman about the CIA's role in Nelson Mandela's arrest. We're going to return to my conversation with him to learn about what role, if any, American officials played in Mandela's release from prison. But before we get there, Tim takes us back to the late 1970s and the early 1980s. He says there was a tension in the United States between a growing anti-apartheid movement and the conservative president, Ronald Reagan. When you mention Reagan, it's important that Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister of, of England at the same time through the most of the 1980s, both of them were crucial supporters of the anti-communist apartheid regime. Absolutely. It is also true that by 1986, all that organizing in the U.S., in the U.K., in Europe, both Western and Eastern Europe, all that organizing had raised consciousness uh, across the globe about the the now increasingly obvious and 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 sort of radically visible injustices uh, in the rule of the apartheid regime, which had reached extraordinary levels of violence by the early 1980s. So by 1986, the U.S. Congress passes the the economic sanctions, the Comprehensive uh, Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986. Reagan himself uh, vetoes it, and the veto is overridden by a Senate that has a, a Republican majority. Reagan is is at odds with his own party at that point. He's sort of a holdout. It was an indicator of just how far the struggle against apartheid had come and the importance of the international sanctions, which helped to bring an end to apartheid within uh, a few years. I mean, by 1990, of course, February 11th of 1990, famously, Nelson Mandela is released from prison, and that's just four years after the American sanctions go into effect. Could you put those economic sanctions against South Africa in the larger perspective of effectiveness of sanctions? Are they seen as one of the leading examples of instances where economic sanctions can actually yield results? They are. Uh, in the case of South Africa, by the time the U.S. gets on board with the 1986 Comprehensive uh, Sanctions Act, the, the U.S. is one of the last to engage in a in a sort of serious set of economic limitations on trade with and investment in South Africa. So there's a kind of unanimity in world opinion by that point, um, which makes the sanctions that much more powerful when the U.S. puts them on. Now, the U.S., of course, is the largest economy in the world. In the case of South Africa, you have this enormous internal organized uprising that by 1985 is huge, and it's bringing the country and its economy to a halt, while at the same time, there is this extraordinary level of unified international pressure of banks not loaning money to the South African government, of corporations not p building um, plants there for factories, of not trading with the region, not investing in it, in, in the country, in South Africa. So that's a kind of internal and external combination that's, that was fantastically powerful. And stepping back, in spite of the global anti-apartheid movement, do you think it would have been possible uh, for the American government to warm to Nelson Mandela uh, were it not uh, for the warming, so to speak, of the Cold War and eventually the end of the Cold War? I take note that Mandela is released at just about the time that the Cold War is coming to an end. 
it's essentially three, close to three months uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, three months and two days. So <laughs> it's not a coincidence. Um, you know, the whole, the whole long-term process by which in South Africa anti-communism, you know, served as a cover for racial totalitarian rule that falls apart with the end of the Cold War. So it, it changes the dynamic. And you're you're asking about a counter counterfactual situation. And counterfactuals are always tough, right? Because, you know, at one level they don't really they're they're impossible to resolve, but if, but they're crucial for us to think through. And I appreciate the question in that regard, because uh, otherwise it's hard for us, since we're not social scientists, to uh, to measure uh, what might have been different and therefore how which factors are more significant than others. So, so if you'd not had an end to the Cold War, it's not at all clear um, that the U.S. relationship with South Africa would have developed the way it did. I mean, it, it did that did resolve the problem. The, U, the U.S. certainly could have come around to warming its relationship with the ANC, even if the Soviet Union still existed on into the 1990s. That's possible. The level of resistance to apartheid had reached staggering effect by 1985. And, and so it's, it's imaginable. But who knows exactly how it would have been. I, do, I could offer one, one remarkable scene that I think is maybe the, the best one of the changed U.S. relationship with Mandela and with the ANC and with black South Africa after the, the end of apartheid. The, the, but the image that, that sticks with me is a photo, I think it was in the, probably in the New York Times, um, from 19, uh, I think it was 1997, in the late 1990s, one of Mandela's many trips uh, abroad, and this one to the U.S., where he goes and gives a, a talk to, a speech to a joint session of Congress. He's invited there, and at this point, everybody loves him. You know, it's post-Cold War, and people have, just like they've sort of reimagined Martin Luther King as this uh, figure of, of great ease and comfort to elite white former segregationists. Uh, they've reimagined Mandela as, as also sort of, you know, making them feel good about themselves. So this almost entirely white set of Congress people and senators are sort of lauding, cheering for Mandela and then taking photos with him afterwards. And when, when the best part of the whole photo shoot was early on when Strom Thurmond, who's still alive, still in the Senate at age 99, which is why I think it was 97, because I think he died in 98. And we should just say no, notorious segregationist. Yeah, he's a, the former South Carolina governor and then and also a former uh, candidate at the Dixiecrats, the breakaway segregationist Democrats uh, for the presidency in 1948. And thanks to the civil rights movement in the U.S., to the black freedom struggle, he had changed his tune, like politicians will do. And his constituents changed, so did he. And then you get this picture of him holding up his arm next to Mandela, the two of them grasping hands the way, you know, victorious combinations will win, um, you know, in this huge smile. He doesn't have, his teeth aren't so good anymore, Thurman, but, but here's Mandela, you know, the former black freedom fighter for South Africa. And here's Thurman, the symbol of everything opposed to Mandela's lifelong struggle with these huge smiles in front of the camera. It was a, it was, it was a, a wonderful end to the 20th century. But time moves on, and tell me that if this is true, I, I find it incredible that Nelson Mandela was on the terrorist watch list in the United States until 2008. Yes, this apparently was true. And I, I don't know the full backstory on why that lingered that long, how much of that it was sort of oversight, how much of it was, you know, sort of a, a, a knowing act by racially 
non-liberal members of the State Department or, you know, others who might. Yeah, I, I find that hard to imagine. I think it was probably more a result of oversights, but it's hard to know. But that's, you know, that's the old problem of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And those things are not, it's, you know, at one level, it's just sort of a cliche that covers everything, doesn't reveal much. But it's also true, you know, that people's, con when context changes, people see things differently. And it's only after the U.S. has finally eliminated its own forms of formal racial segregation and violence that you know, that Americans can begin to see a little more clearly. It's like they get bifocals about South Africa as a result. Tim Borstelman teaches global history at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's the author of many books, including Apartheid's Reluctant Uncle, The United States and Southern Africa in the Early Cold War, and The Cold War and the Color Line, American Race Relations in the Global Arena. <laughs> 